Good evening. Well, we're getting close to Christmas. You can tell because people are crazy on the road. Wow. Yeah, we've had a rough week, haven't we? And some have had a very rough, a lot of really terrible flooding this last week. And I guess that storm was Sunday into Monday, and so many of the major highways have been closed. So it's great that you got here. I wasn't sure who could, depending on where you are. It's almost impossible to travel. And uh, fortunately, some of the highways are opening up, but some of them are closing. <laughs> so Patterson's a mess. So keep those people in your prayers. Can you imagine a week before Christmas, you're, you're dealing with your house and your car? And, and, and fortunately, I don't think there was any storm-related deaths, but there may have been. I don't think so. In either case, it's just, it's really, it's got to be an absolutely awful week for that. And then, of course, now everything's icing up. So uh, if you get a little cranky when you're driving home, just remember you're driving your car to a nice warm home, that even if it takes you three times as long to get there, you have a place to go. That's what I've been telling myself, and it's actually worked. It's kept me thankful, you know, grateful, and um, sane. (laughs) Well, this evening we are going to be entering the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 7 through 12. The theme of the book really is man's wisdom. The first half of this book really had to do with everything being meaningless, and that was the point of the outline. Now he's, for the rest of the book, going to hone in on man's wisdom in particular. And we're going to look at different aspects of man's wisdom. And we start, and I actually like this chapter quite a bit, uh, we start with the fact that philosophy is meaningless. Now, there are a lot of great, wonderful minds out there. There are people who have thought their way into a corner. Uh, they have thought of all different ways of thinking <laughs> and, and philosophizing and uh, different schools of philosophy, different isms that people adhere to because they you know, want to explain everything according to a particular set of rules or understanding. And we'll talk about some of those this evening because I think what man does oftentimes with philosophy is he wants to try to understand what life is really all about. So a philosopher will lay down a series of assumptions and then weigh all of life's particulars and all of his or her experiences against those assumptions and try to make sense of them. So that's, that's the idea. That's what a philosopher does. It really means a lover of wisdom. Sophia is wisdom and Philo is love, a lover of wisdom. So when we talk about philosophy and it being meaningless, what we're saying is not so much that being a lover of wisdom is meaningless, but being a lover of man's wisdom is meaningless. That is, wisdom in trying to figure out life apart from God and his word. Remember, this book is the writings of a man who refers to himself as the teacher or the preacher. It's what Ecclesiastes means. And he's going through his life as an older man, looking back and sharing that in all of his life's experiences, as he has approached things from the standpoint of understanding according to man's wisdom, that he's come up empty and he's been frustrated. And we believe this book was written by Solomon, who was gifted wisdom by God in the greatest of ways, and yet took that wisdom and used it improperly, inappropriately, and really didn't submit himself to God. So if you use wisdom, but your desire is to do things that are contrary to God's word, that wisdom actually works against you. 
philosophy does as well. And so in chapter 7, we're going to see that philosophy is meaningless. And let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us an understanding of your word, that when we love your wisdom, the wisdom of your word, we, we know that wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the end, the beginning, the very beginning, even the sum total, really, of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. But when we take reverence out of the equation and we just look at wisdom, knowledge, and understanding apart from you, we come up short, we come up empty. So, Lord, I pray that this evening as we look at the writings of Solomon, we would understand that these are the conclusions of a man who finally figured it out, who finally figured out that everything is meaningless apart from you and that man's wisdom will only lead to frustration. And so, Lord God, give us that understanding and may we seek your wisdom in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2. Now, here's the thing. We're going to look at three specific isms, philosophies, and they're among the, well, two of them especially are among the bleakest of philosophies, and the idea behind these philosophies, again, a set of rules, a a set of uh, understanding, uh, a certain type of understanding, such that you weigh everything that happens in life against this understanding and explain everything based on this presumption or assumption. But as we look at chapter 7... We get into verses 1 and 6, and we're going to see fatalism. Fatalism. Fatalism will only end in frustration. That's what he's about to tell us. Let me explain, if you're not familiar with the doctrine or teaching or philosophy of fatalism, fatalism teaches that all events are predetermined by fate and therefore unalterable. That is, they're determined by fate and cannot be changed. So that is a very bleak outlook, but it's called fatalism. All right, well, let's look at verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Yeah, does that sound a little bleak? Well, fatalism is bleak. It basically says, what's the point to life? Your philosophers who embrace fatalism ultimately come to the conclusion that life isn't even worth living. Can you imagine? You you embrace a philosophy, man's wisdom. You have this great philosopher come along and describe to you this truth that somehow uh, everything that happens is already determined. You can't do anything about it. You can't change it. I mean, so what's the point, right? Well, here we know that death does mark the inevitable and solemn end of a life's journey. How you live your life will determine how you experience your death. And here, in fatalistic thinking, it just doesn't matter. See, the end of our life here is compared to a good reputation in life. The end of your life, the writer says, is compared to a good reputation in life. So, good reputation is a good thing. The end of your life is a good thing, according to this writer, because then it's finally over. But the beginning of our life is compared to perfume. Now, perfume is a scent, but it's a scent that that disguises the truth. It covers up or hides a not-so-pleasing aroma. It's like sometimes you you smell something funky, right? So you get like a potpourri spray or something, and you spray it, and now you got a combination of 
popery and funk. And I'm not talking James Brown funk either. And, you know, you combine it. To be funny, some people, well, I'm not going to say because there's no, no room for bathroom humor here this evening, but people will describe these scents in peculiar or funny ways, but it's true. You kind of get a mix of what really smells bad with something that tries to cover it up. Well, that's how he describes the beginning of life. It's compared to a scent that disguises the truth. That's not a good thing. So he looks at the beginning of life as, oh, great, now what? And the end of life is, ah, finally. Can you imagine going through life like that? But there are so many people that do. I mean, ultimately, when someone, God forbid, they decide to take their life, they essentially get to the place where they just don't want to live anymore. They just don't see the point. They've lost hope. Fatalism has no, no hope. How could there be? Everything's predetermined. You can't do anything about it. You can't change it. So what's the point? I would not like to be a fatalist. I don't know how you get up in the morning. But life is futile in this way of thinking since we're all destined to die anyway. So might as well get it over with. That's the fatalist. And sorrow, they embrace sorrow. Fatalists embrace sorrow as the appropriate response to the futility of life. So you go through life lamenting life, complaining. I uh, oftentimes will have conversations with either a neighbor or someone at the store and, you know, hey, how you doing? Uh, and then you get this series of complaints, and they're griping about this or griping about that. And it's just obvious that this is a person who's embraced fatalism. They just, they just gripe. And if, if you have been tempted to be fatalistic re, uh, recently, I encourage you, this is not a godly philosophy. Look at verses 3 through 6. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sorry, I disagree. (laughs) Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. See, this writer, or the writer describing fatalism, can't understand why you would laugh. Can't understand why you would find any joy in life. After all, it's all meaningless to him. So sorrow to him is the appropriate response. As he said earlier in verse 2, better to go to a house of mourning. So better to go to like a wake than to go to a feast. I don't know about you, but if you do go to a funeral and you go to the wake... The only thing that kind of makes it bearable is what? The repast afterwards where you get to eat, right? Or is it just me? I'm the only one that thinks that. You, know, you go to the funeral. And, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's who enjoys those kinds of things, you know? But then you get together and the family comes together and they console one another. They're laughing. I love when I go to awake and, it, you know, it starts out. It's always solemn. Everyone's in hushed tones. And especially if the person knew the Lord and they're with the Lord, it starts out being very respectful, as we should be. About halfway in, people are laughing, telling stories. That's the way it's supposed to be. So I'm not so quick to embrace sorrow over laughter, but fatalism does. He feels that it's wiser to see things for how they really are than to be deceived into hope. Can you imagine going through life like that? Oh, oh you know who I think of? Eeyore. You remember Eeyore, right, from R.A. Milne's uh, Hundred Acre Wood, right? Winnie the Pooh. I read those books when I was a kid, and yeah, Eeyore, oh, bear. I know some people like Eeyore, and they would be fatalists. 
So there you go. There's a good practical example. But, you know, hope, in their mind, hope will only bring disappointment and a broken heart. So why hope? It's foolish to live a life of false hope and self-deception only to be uh, disappointed when you die. Wow, man, I, I could not be a fatalist. Even in my worst days, I wasn't fatalistic. If anything, I was optimistic. I certainly wasn't fatalistic. But that's not the only philosophy we're going to talk about. Let's look at one that, this one makes a little bit more sense to me. It's called pragmatism. Pragmatism. Now, the writer's going to tell us, oh, by the way, pragmatism, just like fatalism, is only going to end in frustration as well. Pragmatism teaches that the meaning of an idea lies in its observable, practical consequences. I'm going to repeat that. It teaches that the meaning of an idea or a concept lies in its observable, practical practical consequences. So, the idea is you look at your experience and measure it against your way of thinking. And if your way of thinking measures up with your experience, you're a pragmatist. So, for example, if you know going to Costco around Christmas is a waste of time because it's too crowded, and you go there and you experience the crowds, and and you say, I knew it. I knew that if I went to Costco during the holidays, by the way, I won't go there until after New Year's. You know how much I love Costco, too, right? But, you know, I know that the practical part of life teaches me that that is true. There are things that happen in life that are just practical, like If you don't eat right, you'll get sick. If you don't uh, wear a coat, you're going to be cold. So the pragmatist understands, when you look at the observable practical consequences of a decision, and that's how you form your world opinion, not based on fatalism, but pragmatism. And so we read in verse 7, extortion turns a wise man into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Well, again, very pragmatic, very obviously true. If a person starts to extort money, he may be a wise man, but he becomes a fool. And, and as he receives bribes, which is what an extortionist does, then we find out his heart becomes corrupted. And there are many, many people in our world today that embrace this. As a consequence, they are corrupted. Now, think about this. We're encouraged to avoid unethical behavior. Why, though? Why is this being told to us? What's the practical consequence of embracing unethical behavior? Well, the pragmatist looks at the situation and says, I'm not going to do that, not because it's right or wrong, but because it will ultimately corrupt me. So because my actions will ultimately corrupt me, I, as a pragmatist, am going to say, I won't do that. You see, there are a lot of people that don't do things that are wrong, but for practical reasons, they would be pragmatists. A Christian doesn't do things that are wrong, and many times there are practical reasons why you might want to do that wrong thing, but we're not pragmatists in that way. We follow God. We're Christians, and if God tells us something is wrong or sinful out of obedience and reverence for God, we don't do that thing, even if that thing would benefit us. In this case, the writer looks at the situation practically or pragmatically and says, well, you shouldn't get to the place in your life where you're extorting money or receiving bribes because it's going to corrupt your heart. You don't want to do that. It's going to get you in trouble. And then in verse 8, 
we're always telling each other in, in Christianity, even on the road in the, ho- the holidays, and you know, you're on the road and you're, you're trying to get around the flooding and everything, we're always telling each other, just be patient, right? Be patient. Now, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we, uh, we, we embrace. It's, it's a description of love. Uh, we look at it that way. Well, the pragmatist believes you should be patient. Why? Because it's going to ultimately benefit you. Now, that's true because it builds character and perseverance. But you can get to the right answer the wrong way. In fact, do you remember, and maybe I'm the only math geek here, remember when you would have uh, an algebraic formula? Or an equation, and you had to give the answer, but you had to show your proof as to how you got there. I mean, it, if the subset of answers, if you answered it like if you could have an answer, sometimes sometimes equations have multiple answers, and you you actually got the number right. If you didn't show how you came to that conclusion, you you didn't get it right. You got it wrong. You had to not only answer the question correctly, you had the proof. You had to show how you got there. I think it's important sometimes for us to remember there are reasons why we think the way we think. It isn't enough to just say, oh, it's good to be patient. We need to understand from a biblical point of view why patience is so important. And you need only read the epistles, and Proverbs, and other books of the Bible to understand that. But the pragmatist doesn't care about any of that. He believes it's best to be patient. Why? Because it's ultimately, ultimately going to benefit you. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. So the idea is like, it's just better for you to be patient because, after all, you don't know how things are going to turn out. So practically, pragmatically speaking, patience is a good thing. Verse 9 says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Now we agree with that. Again, a pragmatist oftentimes will, because they're practical, they will agree with Christian principles. They will agree with godly ways of thinking. But why? How did they get there? Okay, they have the right answer, but show me the proof. How did you get there? Why is it that you believe what you believe? That's very important. And so, what we learn in verse 9, he's telling us, don't be provoked because it's ultimately going to make you look foolish. And you don't want to look foolish. So don't allow yourself to be provoked. I agree, but we also know that anger is a sin. We also know that it not only makes you look foolish, it separates you from God. So we look at things on a completely different level, on a completely different plane. We don't just use pragmatism to make decisions and live our lives. Now here's one, this is interesting. Have you ever known anybody who's been nostalgic? Sometimes I wax a little nostalgic I'll be watching a movie and I'll remember, oh man, that came out in the 80s. Or I'll hear a song. And it's, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 70s and 80s. So I'll hear a song and I'm like, oh man, I love that song. Yeah, because it's not so much the song, it brings me back, right? Well, here's what verse 10 tells us Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Now, The writer here says, don't be nostalgic because it's going to reveal you as unwise. But here's a good reason not to be nostalgic. Not that it's, I mean, it's okay to look back and have fond memories. But if you get caught up in the past and you're constantly thinking about the past, when are you living in the present? When are you moving forward into the future? Right? I mean, I've always said that, you know, if you... If you get stuck in the past, 
in your life. Let's say you get stuck in the past. Inevitably, you're going to suffer from depression. I have a a little, I wouldn't call it a philosophy, but a way of thinking that I would say is that most people that are stuck in depression are stuck in the past. So they need therapy to deal with the past. People who move on, typically, typically, there are, there are different types of depression, and I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but typically people that don't get stuck in the past don't deal with depression. In fact, there are people that deal with anxiety. Those are the people who are living in the future. They're constantly thinking about what's next, Right? In the future, in the future. And of course, that makes them nervous because they don't know what it's going to be. And they start to think, oh my goodness, what if this happens? So you got people depressed living in the past. People living in the future, they're anxious. You know, they're stressed out. By the way, it's really hard not to be stressed if you're living in the future. Because the future is so uncertain. In fact, for us, well, God, it's certain. But for us, it is. It's uncertain. How about you live in the present? You see, what I've been doing uh, over the last couple of years, especially once we hit those COVID years, I've been really cultivating a very balanced way of life. I've, I've been living in the moment. And you know what I find? I'm not depressed because the past is the past. Can't go back. What's the point? And you know what? Tomorrow, who knows? Who cares? Today is today. And um, there are certain philosophies and, and even religions that cultivate this idea of living in the moment. And I unfortunately say that in the West, we typically don't. We either live in the past or live in the future. If you can just resist the temptation to think about tomorrow too much, that is quite biblical. I'm sure you would agree. Tomorrow will take care of itself. The evil is sufficient for today. And, you know, take this advice, which, again, comes from a different angle, but still is true. Don't look back saying, why were the days better than these? That person gets depressed because, oh, I used to be young. Oh, I had so much hope. Oh, I thought I was going to get that. You know. And, and it's, it's just a very unhealthy way of thinking. And we have to do better than to live in this pragmatic way. Even though the pragmatist will tell you, don't be nostalgic, it's going to reveal you as unwise. We don't want to be nostalgic because what's the point? We have a glorious hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? We have the very present relationship with God and with others that we can enjoy. Looking back isn't going to help. So why do it? So I I love, I do like philosophy. I really do. But so much of it is really baloney when you read the great philosophers of our days. Uh, Here's one. Be wise because, listen, why would you be wise? Well, the Bible tells us to be wise, not foolish, right? But be wise because of the personal benefits that wisdom brings. That's what the writer says. And in that we, re- we agree. But again, wisdom for wisdom's sake is, is going to end in frustration. Pragmatism, if that is your motivation, will lead to frustration. But when we read in verses 11 and 12, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. We all agree. And benefits those who see the sun. That's everyone. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. I agree with that philosophy, but how he got there, how the pragmatist gets there, is different than the Christian who embraces the word of God. And so, left only to fatalism, left only to pragmatism, you're going to have a very frustrating life going to be empty and void and everything will be meaningless because man's wisdom cannot take the place of God's wisdom in God's word. Amen? 
Okay, we got one more ism. And this is determinism. It's a little different than fatalism. This, of course, also will only end in frustration. Now, this is not a philosophy class, but I'll put it to you this way. It teaches that our actions are entirely controlled by previous conditions. Our actions are entirely controlled by previous conditions. So we act based on things that have already been set in motion, those things that have already been determined. So determinism, not as bleak as fatalism, but it really gives us an understanding of life that's incorrect as well, because it will end in frustration. The idea is that man can't change himself or anything else since God has affected its condition. Is that really true? I don't think so, and I'm going to tell you why. I think that God has given us the tools for change. I mean, what is repentance if not change? It literally means a change of direction or a change of mind. What determinism would tell us is that repentance doesn't matter. The previous conditions lead us to the inevitable conclusion. So what you do and what actions you take, they're only contingent upon what happened before, and there's not all that much you can do about it. And, of course, we know that's not true. So in this case, it's definitely a wrong way of thinking. Uh, Let's look at verses 13. Uh, Let's look at just verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? That's an interesting, and I get it. You know, it's an interesting way of thinking. How can you straighten out what God has made crooked, right? Yet, I don't know about you, my life was very crooked. God straightened out my life, but I was a partner in that process, and still am. You you know, make your ways straight, the scripture talks about, you know. He'll make our paths straight. But we're encouraged to do that as well. And so, you know, if the Bible gives us commands and direction, if they're based on the previous condition of our sin, then we're lost without hope. And yet we know that's not true. So I don't think that we should think this way. I don't, I don't embrace determinism. Man has no choice but to accept his faith under this way of thinking. Excuse me, to accept his fate according to this way of thinking as it is revealed to him moment by moment. So here someone goes through life, this is my fate, moment by moment, I'm finding out, oh, this is the way to, oh, nothing I can do about it, oh, I guess I better just submit to my fate. And I would never live that way. That, that doesn't embrace hope, it doesn't embrace change, the power of God in our lives, repentance. You can change through the power of God, amen? And therefore, I don't know why anyone would think everything's predetermined. Uh, It's determined on the basis of your actions and your reactions and your responses to God. So we read in verse 4, when times are good, excuse me, verse 14, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Really? Is that true? Is that true? I don't think so. I don't think the scripture teaches that at all. And remember, we've talked about this. Ecclesiastes is the Bible, and the Bible is the Word of God. But when it presents a false doctrine, just because it's the written Word of God, don't embrace it. When Satan is quoted in the Scripture, do we believe what he's saying? No. And when man's wisdom is presented to us by way of contrast with the truth, it's only presented so that we'll understand what's wrong and embrace what's right. 
Okay? So yes, there is error in the Bible, and it's presented to us so we can know the truth. So, I don't agree that man has no choice but to accept his fate as it is revealed to him moment by moment. I don't believe that at all. Look at verse 15. He says, in this meaningless life, and of course life is not meaningless, but when you are no longer serving God, it is meaningless. All right? In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. And this troubles a man who is a determinist because he can't figure out how someone who's wicked would do well and how someone who's righteous would do poorly. But we as Christians know that sometimes God brings trials and affliction to a man like Job. And yet he allows wickedness to prosper, as Asaph lamented when he said, why do the wicked prosper? I believe Habakkuk may have said the same. This idea, why do good things happen to bad people, and why do bad things happen to good people? A determinist cannot embrace that. Some of this was... uh, promoted by Job's counselors in the book of Job. They kind of, a lot of them embraced determinism, and their arguments were rebuked by God. So there is no guarantee that our actions will change the course of our lives. That's what the determinist will say. So really, why bother, right? Look at verse 16. This is terrible advice, but I'll I'll share it anyway. Verses 16 through 18. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Now, again, that's the doctrine of a determinist. Don't rock the boat. I remember when I became a Christian, I went back to my church that I grew up in, a denominational church, not unlike this church, Methodist church, uh, and I started to tell the people I was in the choir with and the people I served with at that and grown up with at that church what I was doing. I was studying the Bible. I'm going to church twice a week. And, and I remember the choir director <clears throat> said to me, that's all well and good, but just don't get carried away. Those exact words. Don't get carried away. That's what we're being told here by the determinists. Don't get carried away, you know? I mean... <laughs> It's safer, far safer, for the determinist to live a life of careful moderation than to live a life of dangerous extremes. Don't get carried away. Being extremely righteous or wise or wicked or foolish may result in a premature death, according to the determinist. In other words, take it easy. Play it safe. You know, if you go with too much righteousness, you're, you may get in trouble. Bad things may happen to you. If, if you go with too much wickedness, certainly bad things will happen. So stay middle of the road, right? Mundane. And there's so many Christians, let alone people, who just walk the middle of the road, you know? But Jesus told us there's a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow gate or a narrow way that leads to everlasting life. Uh, I, I do suggest you not follow this advice. This is the philosophy that is meaningless. He's presenting it to us so we'll understand why it is meaningless. The safest course of action, according to the determinist, is to take a balanced approach to life and see what happens. So stay right there in the middle. Don't go too far this way. Don't go too far that way. 
And, of course, that is not the way we live our lives. So, after these isms, fatalism, pragmatism, determinism, the writer now wants us to understand that if you devote yourself to wisdom, which is what a philosopher does, remember the meaning of the word. Philosophy, a lover, or philosopher, a lover of wisdom. Philosophy, the love of wisdom. Well, now he tells us, just in case you didn't get that, he tells us that a devotion to wisdom is only going to end in frustration. Again, that's man's wisdom. Verses 19 through 22. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Now, of course, we agree with that. It goes on to say, Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, this is one of those times where what the writer's doing is saying, okay, he shared with us three different philosophies, showed us how it will end in frustration, and now he sort of backs up to tell us that if you devote yourself to philosophy and to wisdom, If you devote yourself to those things, you'll be frustrated. However, wisdom is a good thing. God's wisdom. Wisdom can empower men, but it can't perfect them. That we know. Here, human wisdom has discovered a divine truth. What's the divine truth? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 20 is essentially what Paul writes or shares in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Oh, I like this. I really do in verses 21 and 22. Don't pay attention to every word people say. If there's anything that annoys me at all, it's eavesdroppers. You know, that you're having a conversation, and it's obvious it's not an open conversation, and someone leans in. When I was a kid, they had this commercial on TV, and I I know I'm dating myself here. It was E.F. Hutton. I guess they were a brokerage house or something. And every time... E.F. Hutton spoke, everyone listened because he had really good advice on how to invest in the market and what to do with your, your money. So the commercial went something like this. When E.F. Hutton speaks and everybody would lean in, people listen. And I'll tell you what, you probably find it on Google if you don't believe me, but he, here's the thing, though. You don't want to be like that. If you listen to every little thing that's being said around you, eventually you're going to pick up some static, you know. Oh, did you see that shirt she's wearing? Oh, I think those shoes are hideous. You know, why do you even want to hear those things? I said to someone one time, you know, my wife and I have been married 35 years. And I, I, people will say, oh, what's the secret of staying married, you know, 35 years? And you know, people have been married much longer, perhaps. But I said, well, I think to, to truly stay married, you have to be blind in one eye and deaf in one ear. So they only see half and hear half of what's going on. It's a funny way of saying, don't pay attention to every little thing. Or you're going to make yourself and everyone around you crazy. You've got to let some things go. You can't be like, what did you say? Did, what did you just do? You know, it, it, that's, that's a recipe for having problems. So I really do believe it's as good. This is actually good advice. Eavesdroppers seldom hear anything good said about them. Uh, you know, so don't do it. By the way, wisdom can never be fully embraced as it humbles us with our own ignorance. The more wisdom you have, the more you realize you don't even really know anything. 
Now look what it says here in verses 23 through 25. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound or deep. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. He's lamenting his life, and he's essentially saying, you know, I, I tried to figure out wisdom, and I couldn't, so I turned myself to doing things that are unwise. In order to understand wisdom, I did the wrong thing. And that's exactly what Solomon did. That is exactly what he did. Wisdom can never be fully embraced, but it will humble you with your own ignorance. But that doesn't mean you want to embrace wickedness either. Look at what he says here, and I think this is a bit of a confessional. Verse 26, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. I think we can agree with some of what was said there, but Solomon certainly is confessing how he lived his life with his great wisdom. That wisdom couldn't prevent Solomon from being ensnared by 1,000 women, right? Remember that? Yeah, 1,000 women in his life. And those are the ones we know about, right? With all of his wisdom, he still made sinful choices, and he discovered by wisdom and experience that mankind is utterly corrupt. That is, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He did it anyway, and he found out the hard way. You know, you can learn the hard way. I would prefer to learn the easy way. You can find out the hard way that God's word is right. But why would you? You could find out the easy way that God's word is right too, right? So this is what wisdom will lead to if you just embrace wisdom for wisdom's sake. Whether any of these philosophies uh, have a little truth here or there, they still don't, they still can't bring what a relationship with God and his wisdom and his word can bring. And so that, we, that much we learn here. Wisdom promises many blessings to those that will listen and obey. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, which is actually the end of this section, who is like the wise man? Who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. That's just the truth. So you have to embrace wisdom, but it's God's wisdom that must be embraced. You know, I think it's important to recognize that Solomon had two things. He had great wisdom, but he also had great authority. And in the next few verses here, and it just goes quickly, but here he tells us that not only is philosophy and the love of wisdom meaningless, but authority is meaningless. That is, great power and authority is meaningless because he had it and it didn't bring happiness. It didn't bring fulfillment. Look at what we read here in verses 2 through 6. He wants us to know that submitting to authority may or may not bring blessing. 
So there's an authority. It doesn't mean good things or bad things. Who knows? It could mean a lot of things. But here's what we read. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases, since a king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. So in relationship to authority, even though there's no guarantee to know whether or not submitting to your authority will bring blessing or not, he still feels that it's a good idea to submit to authority. It's still best for you to respect authority. The oaths of allegiance should certainly be honored, and you should willingly make yourself available for service without question. The idea is you have to be the better person, you have to be the bigger person, but understand this, authority is meaningless, just like philosophy. Having authority, it's not as if submitting to authority guarantees that you're going to be blessed. That's the point he's trying to make. Just because your authority tells you to do something and you do it doesn't mean it's all going to work out either. So, so much for authority. You can't put your hope in power. That's the point. You can't really put your hope in power. You only stand to gain by being politically savvy and submissive. So there's a time and a place and a procedure that should be followed, and you really have to be careful. It's best for you not to presume anything or to, or to be rebellious as well. It's best. Look what he says in verses 7 through 10. Since no man knows the future, and that's certainly true, who can tell him what is to come? No man has the power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Let's think about this for a minute. You know, we live in total uncertainty regarding the future. And this makes people crazy, as we talked about before. Anxious people are constantly trying to figure out or predict the future. Okay, but we don't have to live like that because we know who holds the future, right? Our Lord is in control of our lives as we submit to him. So you put your hope in him as your authority, not the government, certainly not the government, not anyone else, not even your church leadership. You submit to God first and foremost. Listen, our authority has the power to preserve our lives or even send us to our death. You get drafted, you get sent overseas, and, you know, hey, listen, authority will often sacrifice individuals for the greater good. You know this. Wickedness will pretty much guarantee an early grave as well. Look at verses uh, 9 and 10. Let's see where we left off. All of this I saw, and I, as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun, there is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then, too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This, too, is meaningless. So there's really no hope in anything apart from God. As I said, wickedness will pretty much guarantee an early grave. Okay, so now we see in verses 11 through 13 that authorities must use severe punishment to maintain order. Unfortunately, today, our justice system has forgotten this, and as a consequence, we're suffering the result of an injustice system. But let's look at verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, we read, When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. 
Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. It's a poetic way of saying they won't grow old. Punishment is a significant deterrent against crime. And when you release people without bail and just sort of, you know, they get arrested and then they go and commit the same crime, what's the worst that happens? They get a free trip downtown and they're let out within hours. And we see the results of that in most of our cities and certainly in New York City. Reverence should yield a long, peaceful, and trouble-free life. It should, according to verse 12, right? It should. God-fearing men do much better. But wickedness should yield a short, difficult, and troublesome life. It's not always true. But oftentimes, a reverent person will be blessed and a wicked person will be cursed. But sometimes it's not like that because our authority is not God in this world. So authority is meaningless. Are you with me? That is not God's authority, man's authority over man. It can't promise you anything. Or have you noticed? They pass laws, and if they don't enforce them, what good are they? And there are people who suffer, and no one does anything about it. And there's crimes that are not, you know, prevented, and they could be. So don't put your hope in philosophy. Don't put your hope in the authority of man. Put your hope in God. That's ultimately where we're heading here. So man's wisdom is being described for us, and not in a good way. Finally, in verses 14 through 17, we read that a devotion to worldly authority will only end in frustration. And so we read... In verse 14, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of life, of the life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom... And to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows it, he cannot really comprehend it. So that's the conclusion there, proving to us that authority is meaningless. Even the noblest authorities make mistakes that result in injustice? How many times have we heard stories of people being punished for a crime they didn't commit? So his concept here is just enjoy life since there are no guarantees that you'll receive justice. It's a little bleak, but you got to live. You got to live your life because you can't rely. I don't need to tell you this. You can't rely on government. You can't rely on man. You can't rely on man's wisdom, man's authority to save you. You can only rely on God. Amen? Regardless of man's futile actions, God is still the ultimate authority, and we appeal to him. Even the wisest among us can't comprehend the meaning of this life through wisdom alone. So yes, man's wisdom is meaningless. Man's wisdom will not answer all of your questions. Philosophy, authority can't help you. Only God 
can help you and bless you. And a relationship with him is what ultimately brings meaning to life. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You show us over and over again through this contrast, through this negative contrast, how important it is for us to live our lives for you, to build our relationship with you, that we might be blessed all the days of our lives. Heavenly Father, help us not to look to man's wisdom or to man's power. May we always look to you because we know that you, in your wisdom and your might, can overrule anything that man might desire to do to us. David said it, I I will not fear what man can do to me. God is greater than our fears, and Lord, we ask that we... We ask that we would remember that at this time of year. We ask that we would live according to that truth. Put our hope in you. Oh, Lord God, you who came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. You, Lord, were coming again to set things right. And when you do, all will make sense. And your wisdom is so much greater than ours. Help us, Lord, to fear you. That is to revere you. Because we know that's where we'll find wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in the fear of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.